truly been loving the Wonder Day Mushroom Gummies by Plant People. This is a mushroom multi-gummy for whole body balance and support that I've been taking every single day. It's packed with 10 adaptogenic research-backed mushrooms that attune to support my body in the areas that I need. It is delicious, fruity, and the wild raspberry flavor makes me look forward to taking it in the morning. By using the Wonder Day Mushroom Gummies, I encourage healthy digestion, modulate my immune system, boost energy and cognitive performance, and support a healthy stress response, which is so important as we are approaching the colder months. Plant People makes regenerative, organic supplements using plants, herbs, and mushrooms that unlock the potential in people and our planet. They also plant a tree for every single product sold and are climate neutral, certified, and B Corp certified. Plant People will be running their site-wide sale between November 19th until December 5th, so folks can get 30% off their biggest sale of the year, no code needed at plantpeople.co. That's 30% off, no code needed at plantpeople.co. Jade Stanton is a mental health coach based out of the United States who uses her personal experience in recovery with borderline personality disorder, depression, and anxiety to help those who are struggling to learn and use coping skills and manage their lives with mastery. Training people in what are known as DBT skills, she serves people in her local community as well as virtually in multiple states and countries, pairing with individuals and treatment professionals to provide an extra level of support and accountability on the recovery journey. Jade is also an avid reader, history buff, cat lady, and most of all, passionate about people. Her mission is to change the way mental health services operate, to spread hope to people who are hurting and help them to take steps forward when they feel like they have fallen through the cracks. I'm not going to lie, this is probably the person that I have been most excited to ever have on the show as a fellow psychology person and someone that lives with borderline personality disorder. I am just so excited to pick Jade's brain and have her wisdom. So I am super privileged and honored to introduce to you Jade Stanton to the show. You all know that I love everything natural and holistic. That's why I was so excited to partner with Avi Supplements. I've been using Avi Supplements to keep me healthy and strong because a healthy body leads to a healthy mind, resulting in a healthier sex life. Sexual health, mental health, and physical health are all intertwined. They're so important. So using Avi Detox reduces my bloat, leaving me feeling more confident and prepared for sexy time. Avi Apple Cider Vinegar Gummies taste delicious and are fun to take every single day. I look forward to taking these. Lastly, Avi Mermaid Multi provides the daily essential nutrients I need every day as a woman. So make the obvious choice today and use discount code Lauren Coletti to get 15% off. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-C-O-L-L-E-T-T-I to get 15% off your purchase at myavi.com. Good afternoon, everyone. I am happily joined here today with Jade Stannon. She is a mental health coach. And Jade, do you focus on borderline personality disorder in your practice? Yes, I do. So what I do is coaching and most of the people, I'd say probably like 95% of the people that I work with uh, have BPD. Perfect. So can you tell our listeners just a little bit about you and how you got into this line of work? Absolutely. Yeah. So I have it. (laughs) I have BPD. Um, I was diagnosed really early on at 16, which is a little bit unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, but I struggled with it my entire life. I, I was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. I was struggling with self-injury. I was, you know, just really miserable. It, it was a, a terrible time and there were no resources. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time that we were diagnosed, well, I was with, you know, of course, my mom and my dad and things, and they didn't explain anything to us. We didn't actually have someone sit down and explain 
what BPD was or what we should be doing until I was probably in my late teens. Um, and so, or maybe even my early 20s. So at that point, we started learning more and more about it. Even then, we couldn't find much help. You know, I'd been to every therapist in the world. I'd been on all kinds of medications. And we were we were really hopeless about it. Um, and at that point, we found a doctor just kind of, it was meant to be. We found him at just the right time in, in my path. And um, I had hit rock bottom. And this doctor um, was a specialist in BPD, but he was not like any of the specialists we had ever seen before. He explained exactly how BPD works with the brain. Uh, he explained how, you know, the, the brain is impacted by BPD, how there are different functions in the brain with BPD and how that impacts our symptoms and what we could do about it. He gave me hope. He was like this. You can get better from this. Uh, you can recover. And that was something that I had never heard before. I had always heard the opposite, that that I was never going to get better. I was never going to have a job. I was never going to have a relationship. Um, so that's when my treatment started. Um, but around the same time, I started um, just pulling people together on online communities and trying to get more information, share the information that I was finding out and sharing some of the things that I was learning as well as, as a uh, psychology major in college and things like that. Um, and so that kind of grew. It grew into big support groups. We had thousands of people from all over the world coming into support groups uh, and just chatting and asking questions. I learned a lot. I was very interactive. And then slowly that formed into what I do now, which is one-on-one -on -one coaching and group coaching. I teach what are called the DBT skills, which is part of the, the treatment for a lot of um, BPD patients and things like that. I partner with treatment teams. I partner with, with psychiatrists and with therapists and things like that to help people on their recovery path because I saw how difficult it was you know, in real life. And I wanted to, to make a change in people and in, in people's journey. Wow. That's so incredible. I've never even heard of a mental health coach before you. It's so inspiring that you use your own personal journey to help other people who are currently struggling. I really love that. Thank you. I, I was actually really early into the mental health coaching fields. Now there are quite a few. There's a lot of therapists that are starting to move into mental health coaching as well because it's a different dynamic. It's a different relationship. It's it's mm -hmm. kind of more fun, honestly. Um, and now that I've been doing this for about five years, I'm starting to see BPD coaches coming out too. I'm starting to mm -hmm. see other people that are specializing in BPD, people who have BPD that are using peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, with their coaching. So it's great. It's a, it's a growing field. Yeah. I really admire that because especially with BPD, the amount of discrimination against patients yeah. or clients is, is unreal. Jade, can I tell you today, I was listening to a book on audible about like support with BPD and I thought it was going to be encouraging and empowering, but the guy reading the book kept calling BPD the monster and people with BPD <laughs> were monsters. And I was just like, I can't listen to this. I already have so much shame. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I, I never stop being shocked, honestly. Um, because one of the things that I do is I help people like find a treatment team in their area. I'll call around and you should hear some of the comments that I get from, from mental health professionals constantly. It's, it's just unbelievable. The things that you read in books, if you do a general Google search, honestly, I blocked all of those sites. <laughs> I don't even, no. they don't even pop up on my Google searches anymore. Cause it's astonishing. And, and it really is. They've done some studies. It is um, one of the most highly stigmatized disorders. Yeah. Absolutely. So for people that are listening that might not even know about BPD, can you kind of just give a definition description of what borderline personality disorder is? Yes. So borderline is um, in the term personality disorder kind of indicates that it's a really longstanding behavior, that it impacts multiple areas of your life, um, you know, relationships, family, career, all of your, you know, you're functioning in all kinds of different areas. And it's usually a lifetime mm -hmm. disorder. Which, so however, that can be kind of discouraging, you know, to yeah. people. And so um, I should kind of preface that to say that when it 
they say it's a personality disorder, it doesn't mean that that is your personality. Mm. Uh, and so what it is, is it's, it's just a set of symptoms to be diagnosed. You have to have five out of nine symptoms. And those symptoms include things like instability in your relationships, um, dissociation. The primary things are major uh, emotional dysregulation. So your moods are changing and they're changing rapidly and they're intense. Uh, and so that's kind of, it's almost like BP or, or bipolar on steroids. Um, and so your, your, your mood is constantly fluctuating. Obviously that would impact anyone's relationships or their ability to function on a daily basis. Um, but people with BP also struggle with chronic emptiness. Um, you know, they can feel really lonely a lot of times and, and it tends to come with other disorders too. Yeah, I think a lot of us diagnosed with BPD have probably early on in our journey have been diagnosed with a multitude of different, I've been diagnosed with the whole DSM and then eventually I came to learn <laughs> it was borderline. So it's, it could be really frustrating. Yes, I've, I, that's really common that people kind of go through everything and they almost rule out everything else. Uh, and then finally come around to borderline. I mean, it's it can be misdiagnosed. It can be confused with bipolar. It can be even confused with autism. Mm -hmm. um, there are just so many. I mean, there are difficulties in diagnosing, but but at the same time, there's not a lot of people that that really specialize in diagnosing, or they just haven't studied enough about it, or don't understand enough about it for them to be able to diagnose it correctly. Mm -hmm. um, so it is really important, I think, for people who are seeking help that they can find someone who, who, who has worked with it, who can recognize it and distinguish it from some of the other things that come along with it. Yeah. Especially because like you said, a lot of mental health practitioners aren't willing to work with people that are diagnosed with borderline. This happened to me a week or two ago. I called a therapist and he said, what is your diagnosis? And as soon as I said BPD, he was like, mm, I can't help you. I'm so sorry. And it just, that shame that it keeps like you think no one is equipped to help me or I'm too damaged is something that I yes. find really common and unfortunate. Yes, it really, really is. And, you know, honestly, I can, I can kind of see from their perspective a little bit because I was a nightmare <laughs> client myself. I was, I was not open to therapy, but you know, that's their job. That that's their mm -hmm. job is to help you. And so they, they signed up for that. Right. Um, and I don't, you know, I have a hard time understanding why a lot of people have a hard time working with people with borderline mm -hmm. because people with borderline are great. I mean, they're great people. They can be so loving, so compassionate, so mm -hmm. kind. They're intelligent. I've never met a person with borderline personality disorder that wasn't top of the charts intelligent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're insightful. They, they're, they're fun to be around. It's how you you approach them. And, and so I find that a lot of practitioners like that right off the bat, you know, obviously they're not approaching their client with a, with a good attitude and open attitude and empathetic attitude right off the bat. And so they're probably not going to get a good response from their clients either. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good point. I'd love for you to talk about how do people get borderline or the causes of it that you've seen in your professional experience? Mm -hmm. Sorry, <clears throat> excuse me. So a common myth is that borderline comes from trauma or abuse. And while that is, I say the word myth lightly because the vast majority of people actually do have a history of trauma and abuse and it's a major contributing factor to borderline personality disorder. So adverse childhood, childhood events in general, um, it doesn't have to be abuse. It, it doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. everyone kind of experiences things differently. Um, but Difficult childhoods, it could even be major illnesses in, in childhood, um, things like that can, can be some contributing factors. Uh, but there's also a biological component, a genetic component. Uh, they have um, different brains. We, we have different brains. Um, we, we have, you know, a ten, tend to have a hyperactive limbic system, which means our, our primitive brain, our survival brain, that part of our brain that is on the lookout for threats and there to help us survive, that part of our brain tends to be hyperactive. And that's where, that's, you know, we're feeling fear all the time. We're feeling fear of abandonment, fear of rejection. We're, we're hyper vigilant. 
at the same time, you know, our frontal lobe has a hard time bringing in logic, breathing in, bringing in rationality. Um, and so we've got high emotion, low reasonability. And so it's very difficult for us to then manage behavior. And a lot of that is biological, uh, but that can also be a result of, you know, trauma, abuse, repetitive stress, prolonged stress. Um, so there's a lot of things they can't really tell you, you know, this is what causes borderline, but the general consensus is it's a combination of biological factors and then environmental factors like adverse childhood events. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's usually in psychology, it's a combination of both. It's not, was it the chicken or the egg? It's kind of nature and nurture at the same time. And right. I've always been interested in getting an fMRI brain scan done. I think that would be so cool. It's like $20,000. So I can't do it anytime soon. <laughs> I know, you know, there's actually there's some interesting um, research on SPECT scans too, S-P-E-C-T, SPECT scans uh, for, for things like depression, anxiety, and they've done some scans for borderline as well. So it would be great if they use that as a diagnostic tool. It's that yeah. it's so expensive. It's so rare for people to do that, unfortunately. Yeah, you actually answered my next question, which was going to be about the brain and BPD, because I don't hear about that often. I hear a lot about the impacts of trauma on someone's neurology or depression, eating disorders. And it's I don't think I've ever heard about BPD brain before, honestly. Yeah. So and that's kind of the unfortunate part is that there's the research is out there. It's just not really talked about a whole lot. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Yeah. Um but there's tons of research. Actually, anybody who wants to go research things like that, Google Scholar is a, is a great resource to find clinical articles and read some of those things. But there has been quite a bit of, of research on the BPD brain um, and, and how it functions or at least how it kind of malfunctions sometimes. Mm. Um, with the scans, I mean, like you said, fMRIs are, are probably the primary source of a lot of that information. Um, but they're seeing a lot of a lot of interaction between kind of those two systems in your brain, the emotional part and the logic part, um, both kind of kind of malfunctioning together, which is not necessarily a BPD problem either. That's typical for a human being, right? When we're when we're really afraid, we don't think la rationally and logically mm -hmm. as as much, right? We're not able to think sure. as clearly when we're really emotional. That's a typical human human response but for bpd that's a heightened response and that's true for a lot of things with the bpd brain is that it's a heightened response mm -hmm. so my doctor also told me something interesting as well that um that the activity is very similar to seizure activity in a brain yeah. and the and it's unprovoked activity or it's abnormal activity things are firing where they shouldn't be firing mm -hmm. or firing at the wrong time or firing too much or firing too little Right. And so that can even spread. Um, so it can spread into, you know, your motor cortex. You might have shakes or you might have things like that. So I thought that was very interesting as well. Um, I haven't looked too far into the clinical research on that, but I, but it was an interesting point that's always stuck with me. Mm. Yeah, that's really intriguing. I love learning about the physiology of the brain and it makes so much sense. And do a lot of people that you've worked with that have BPD, do they identify as like empaths or highly sensitive people? Because I find that to be really true for me. My sensitivity is skyrocketed. <laughs> yeah, I can say hands down every single one of them. Yeah. Every single one of them mm -hmm. identifies as a highly sensitive person. And that's that's really kind of the so – I had someone ask me the other day, you know, um, I think, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person. Could I have BPD? And, and so I – I kind of did a little quick research um, just to give them the best explanation that that a lot of pe most people with BPD are probably highly sensitive people, but not every highly sensitive person has BPD, mm -hmm. right? It's being highly sensitive doesn't mean you have a disorder, but we're all highly sensitive. I've, I don't think I've ever met someone with borderline that was not a highly sensitive person in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And, and highly sensitive people are my favorite people, honestly. Me so too. So <laughs> yeah. Me too. It's probably because you're one. You're one of us. So. Right. <laughs> you understand. Right. <laughs>
Yes, they are the lights in the world, in my opinion. Exactly. Yes. So misunderstood. So what are some common symptoms of someone with BPD that you notice? Yes. So anger is a big one, um, but it kind of ex- it, it expresses itself differently. So some people have explosive anger where they're going to shout, they're going to yell, they're going to to throw things, you know, and, and get kind of aggressive. And then there's also people that tend to be more of what they call quiet BPD, yeah. uh, which is not a, really a technical term, but kind of within the BPD community, we refer to people as, as a quiet BPD, mm-hmm. um, where we put, we push it down, we hold it in, right? We get quiet, we shut down. And then there's a lot of us who do both. We, mm-hmm. we explode or we go inside, we shut down when we're angry. Um, and anger is part of that survival instinct. It's part of that threat response, part of that hypervigilance. Um, you know, so anger is very common, not always easy to spot though. I personally didn't even recognize that I was angry. I know mm-hmm. when I started accepting that I had borderline personality disorder, I didn't realize I was angry. Um, I, I, as I learned to recognize my emotions, I learned that I was constantly irritated mm-hmm. and then it just took something small for me to erupt into anger and I would be angry at the world. I wasn't just angry at something or some person. I was angry at everyone, everything, myself, especially. Um, The fear of abandonment is big too. Fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, um, real or not real, real Mm -hmm. or perceived. So we might see rejection where there is no rejection. We might see abandonment where there is no abandonment. Every comment someone makes right? We're like, does that mean they don't like me? Are they going to leave? Are they going to, you know, maybe I should leave them before they leave me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that. I hate you. Don't leave me cycle that we get stuck into with the fear of abandonment. Um, self-identity is a big one too. So our, we have a hard time kind of having a, a stable sense of self because our emotions and our moods and our outlooks and our perceptions are constantly changing. We have a hard time figuring out, well, am I an angry person? Am I a happy person? Am I a moody person? You know, what, what type of person am I? Who am I? What do I want in my life? You know, things like that. We have a hard time kind of grounding ourselves and, and finding ourselves. Um, unstable relationships is another big one. And that's usually the thing that drives people to get help, to get treatment. Not always, but it's, it's a big driving factor is that someone sees, sees it affecting their relationships in some way, especially romantic relationships where you're afraid the person's going to abandon you. And so you start pushing them away. Um, or, you know, you have a hard time managing your stress and your anxiety and your fear and your anger and you're lashing out and it's affecting the people around you. Those types of things are, are some of the most painful things I think that we deal with as part of our symptoms. Um, and that treatment of course can help with, uh, but, but those are some of the, the top ones. You're preaching to the choir. All those hit home. I was like, yes. <laughs> right? We know what it feels like. Yeah, I for um, sure I sh- like – oh, continue. Sorry. I, I should probably mention the, the last part, which is the self-harm and the suicidality. Mm-hmm. Chronic suicidality is, is really common as well um, and self-harm in various forms. It could be substance abuse. It could be self-sabotage. It could be physical self-harm, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So that's also a big one. But, again, not everyone with BPD um, – has suicidal or self-harm behaviors. Yeah, I think that's Sorry, a common misconception that if you self-harm, you automatically have BPD. That's something that a lot of like therapists assume or have assumed, you know, how many times I've gone to a, a doctor and I tell them I self-harm, so they put the label on me without even knowing anything else about me. It's really harmful. Yes, you are 100% correct. It's especially harmful to the young community, the, the teenagers, the 13, 14 year olds, because um, it is, you know, quite a quite a label to be put on, especially without yeah. deeper looking into the situation. Um, and self-harm is on the rise, mm-hmm. you know, tragically, but it's on the rise. And and so if we're if we're just blanket diagnosing everyone with with self-harm, with BPD, that can go really wrong really fast. Yeah, for sure. And I'd love to talk more about the label, because as someone that has BPD, 10 years ago, when I first heard of the diagnosis and, and a 
uh, psychiatrist told me I had it, I immediately had my own prejudice about it. And I was like, no, that can't be true. That's like a really <laughs> bad thing to have. Like, I'm not manipulative. I, I was like, so against it. And I think that stigma we were talking about contributes more shame to the label of BPD. Oh, yeah. It took me a quick five minute search to see what BPD was the first time I, I heard the <laughs> label to say, yeah, that's no, no way, you know, in hell is that what I have. Um, but I knew deep down as I was reading these, I was like, yes, I fit every box. Mm. Um, you know, I knew deep down, but I was in denial and, and I didn't want to have it. And now I can validate that because it makes sense. No one would want to have this. Mm. Um, you know, it's a really, really tough illness to have. Yeah, for sure. I love the symptoms you, t- you talked about. And I want to touch more on that with the explosive and the implosive. Personally, I identify more with quiet BPD, very implosive. And something Mm -hmm. that I think it could definitely for sure be a combination of both most of the time. But something that you said that really resonated with me was the anger piece. And a lot of times we don't think we're angry. I was just like, I'm very sad all the time when really the sadness was a mask of the internal anger. I think that I was experiencing and it sounded like for you, that was irritability. Right. And it works the other way around too, where, you know, we might feel shame, but it gets covered up with anger. And so Mm -hmm. we either don't realize that we're angry or we don't realize that we're ashamed. You know, quite frankly, we have a hard time realizing exactly what it is that we're feeling and, and how to manage it. And, and, and that's really another contributing factor. I didn't really mention about BPD is just an invalidating environment in general. Mm -hmm. If you're not, you know, if people are, are telling you your emotions are stupid, your emotions are silly, you know, things like that. You never learn how to say, oh, I'm angry or I'm sad and this is what anger is and this is how we deal with anger. You know, you never learn those things. And so we we tend to, while we're very aware um, and self-aware of of how much pain we're in, we're not necessarily aware of exactly what the emotion is that we're feeling. And therefore, we have a hard time figuring out how to manage it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that. It, that's frequent with the anger too, is that either something will cover up the anger or the anger will cover up the shame or the guilt or the fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Or sadness, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And something else you, you said that really hit me was the dissociation, which I'd love to talk more about because most mm-hmm. of my audience um, are survivors of trauma. And I think mm-hmm. dissociation is a huge symptom of PTSD and BPD at the same time. So can we talk more about the dissociation, particularly, I think when we're feeling in that fight or flight response, a lot of us can be very disconnected from our body as a protective safety measure. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that. I was just watching a a video today on trauma and they were talking about how, you know, trauma is the opposite of connection. It disconnects you from yourself. It disconnects you from others. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what detachment is. It's, or, or just depersonalization mm-hmm. or dissociation. These types of things are, are a disconnection and both literally, I think, and, and metaphorically, we're disconnecting from ourselves. We're disconnecting from the world. We're disconnecting from reality, but our, our brain is also disconnecting it's, it's shutting off, you know, things that are too painful for us to deal with or feel. And sometimes it happens seemingly out of nowhere. You know, we don't even know why we're dissociating. Um, but we're just not present in the reality or we feel like we're not real or we feel like things aren't really happening around us. Um, you know, we kind of get into a fog, very common with PTSD, like you said, CPTSD. And that's also, you know, makes it difficult to kind of distinguish some of these disorders and diagnoses for, for the professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, but the dissociation, um, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people get great results with body work, with somatic work, with EMDR, with somatic therapy, you know, things like that, because connecting with your body, um, seems to be the way back to connecting with others and connecting with yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely attest to that. It's it's huge because a lot of times in traditional talk therapy, and we'll talk more about DBT later on, but it's I feel it's for sure helpful, especially with the depression and anxiety and things like that. But with someone with BPD or CPTSD, as you mentioned, the trauma is really deeply rooted and ingrained in the person's 
physical body. And I think it could be hard to get out of that uh, fight, flight, freeze, fawn response if we're just consistently talking about the issue without integrating that mind-body connection as well, personally. I, I yes, I agree wholeheartedly. I, there's a mind-body connection and that's you know, that's an age old tale, but it's so true. And there's, and they're seeing it now in the research that there is a huge connection there. And when we disconnect from our mind, we disconnect from our body too. And, and that trauma, our body remembers stuff that our brain does not. So it will react in ways that we're not necessarily consciously making happen or don't consciously have control over in the moment, but we can we can definitely do things to start to get some of that control back too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Some other symptoms you talked about, I I feel like all these symptoms could be an entire discussion in themselves. (laughs) Yes. But something you mentioned, it was the chronic feelings of boredom or emptiness. And you also mentioned um, sort of moody shifts in mood or impulsiveness I find that for me, the emptiness kind of caused those risk-seeking behaviors like mm-hmm. overspending or um, like turbulent relationships, things like that, self-harm. Do you find that the the emptiness, the feelings of boredom can lead to those kind of um, those inducing behaviors that cause you to be excited or scared, if that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's kind of another, speaking of dialectic, it's a dialectic, really, that, that we, you know, if we're, we either don't feel enough. And Mm -hmm. so we do things to try to feel something or we feel too much. And so we do something to try to feel less or avoid those feelings. Um, And, and so yes, I see that a lot, even, you know, especially in myself, where, you know, I start feeling really empty, bored, wondering what's the point, what's the point of my life, nothing matters, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And it's a little different than depression. It's kind of this, this state of agitation, but you don't know why or what to do about it. And, and you, but you just, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I have a hard time describing emptiness. It's very heavy. I think a lot of times like a heavy feeling. And so we'll seek out things to kind of stimulate something Mm -hmm. or to distract us, to distract us from the discomfort of the emptiness. No, And it may work, you know, it actually, that's why we do it. Cause a lot of times it's effective for a little bit. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll get us distracted. It'll get us feeling alive again. It'll feel us getting interested or excited again. And then it wears off and we go back to the emptiness and, and we're stuck right back in the same cycle. So yeah, I see that a lot. Yeah, it is a cycle. It, it's a lot of all or nothing black and white thinking. I think it's yes. ex, that extreme of needing to be stimulated and then the opposite side when you're just feeling completely detached and numb. And it's it's really sad too because a lot of people with BPD, people in their lives don't understand. So they think we're just being irresponsible. So it just right. leads to more guilt and it's just a horrible cycle. <laughs> right. You know, there's so much progress that has come from people who, you know, their family or their friends, they they start to learn some of the skills as well. And they start to learn how to speak to us and, and help us work through some of these problems and teach us how to speak to ourselves because we really, we really do put ourselves down. And, and a lot of times we're getting, you know, judged by other people as well none of that helps, you know, none of that judgment is helpful. It's, it's the compassion and the validation and then the help that will get us, you know, stuck out of that cycle. And, and it is a cycle. It's a tough one to get out of, but I I can't tell you how many people I'm starting to see. I mean, it seems like exponential growth. I'm starting to see more and more people every single year that are sharing recovery stories. They're saying, you know, this was me. I I was empty constantly. I was self-injuring or I was I was, you know, doing all of these self-sabotaging behaviors. I couldn't hold down a relationship. I, I, mm. I couldn't hold down my emotions and things like that. And, and now they're saying, you know, I, I, I no longer qualify for this disorder. You know, I'm free from this. I don't have the disorder anymore. It's not to say that they're not still sensitive or they're, they're, they don't still have, you know, maybe more conflict in relationships than some other people, but, but they're not weighed down and this illness is not interfering with their ability to live a life. That's goals right there. <laughs> You're right. I know. I, can't I know. <laughs> yeah, it's doable. Yeah, 
For sure. I think something that sadly comes with the label, as you said, with the personality disorder, it's not curable, it's lifelong, it's chronic. It's And that's what I think leads to a lot of suicidality or helpless and hopeless thoughts is I'm going to be this way forever and nobody can help me. I'm unfixable. Yeah, I agree. Wholehearted. I, I think that's the main message that is going to change. You know, if, if we if people know that they can get through it, then they, then they will, they'll try to do things to get through it. If we tell people there's, there's no getting better or, you know, you got to wait till you're 70 to get better or whatever it is. I've heard all kinds of different things. (laughs) Um, you know, there's no hope and people can't wait. They're suffering. That's, that's what I love so much about Marsha Linehan and what she's done with DBT is that she acknowledges how the immense suffering that this illness brings and, and our brains actually feel that suffering to a, to a higher extent. We feel pain more intensely. So it's, it's really a lot of suffering. And when someone's suffering, they, they can't continue to suffer. My, one of the first things my doctor ever said to me that, that got me to start listening to him was he said, this is unbearable. This is an unbearable way to live. And that's why we have to fix it. And we will, and we can. And that was the starting point for me. That was what sparked some hope in me. And, you know, I would lose my hope and get my hope back, but I needed people to keep instilling that hope in me. And that's what we need more of from the treatment professionals, from everyone, um, is hope for, for people with BPD because it is manageable. People do get better. They do have lives. They just won't if we're telling them they can't. Well, your doctor sounds amazing. I wish he was. Oh, he's great. (laughs) We need more doctors like that. (laughs) Yes, we do. I wish there were a million of him. I'm watching him gray and I'm like, can we clone you, please? You know, (laughs) what can we do? Yeah, well, we're lucky that we have people like yourself that are in this field helping so many people. I think it's it's so important and needed. Yeah, there's this is, I think, where the movement is going to come from is within the the community. It's peer to peer. It's the people who have walked the walk that are going to make the changes in the community. Um, and they are, they're doing it. That's where a lot of the the movement is coming from. So I really appreciate that. I've, you know, I've, I couldn't have dreamed ever in my life that this is what I would be doing. Um, but it's honestly the best thing I could ever, I, I never want to stop. I'll be doing this till mm-hmm. the day I die. I love working with people with BPD. They're wonderful. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for saying that. We need to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we all need to hear that. I agree. Mm, Yes. So the thing that I've been saving for last, because this is what I'm most passionate about and most want to hear, uh, we talked about the symptoms of perceived or real abandonment and rejection, as well as unstable personal relationships, which has been the story of my life, girlfriend. So let's talk (laughs) about that, the distorted, unstable self-image that can lead to intense relationships, splitting, I hate you, don't leave me. Let's unpack that. Yes. So that is where a lot of the turbulence comes from. And you know, when we have close relationships and we're able to function in relationships, a world of problems can be solved. You know, when we're, when we have, when we can connect with others and, and have that, when we struggle with the fear of abandonment and the fear of rejection and, and sabotaging our relationships for lack of a better word, um, we, we end up, you know, living our worst nightmare, which is that we, we do end up alone. Mm-hmm. You know, we push everyone away and we end up alone. And so that's not the way to live. That's not the way anyone deserves to live. That's not the way we want to live, of course. Um, so, you know, when it, when it comes to changing that, when it comes to, to recognizing that and changing that, um, relationships, I think are the hardest area of life to really apply some of these skills because it's not just you, you've got another person in the mix. And so you might be working on, challenging your fears of abandonment and challenging your fears of rejection. But that other person might feel afraid that you're going to abandon or reject them because, because mm-hmm. that's been the cycle. Right. Um, and so as an example, you know, in my own life, I, my husband, before we got married, we were together for many years and I would leave and come back and I would leave and come back and I would storm out and I would come back and I would accuse him of, you know, not loving me and, and not wanting to be with me and not caring enough and all of these things. And then I would come back and I would say, you know, I love you. I want to be with you. And I would know that he loved me. It was that black and white 
thinking. It was either he's the person I want to be with 100% or I got to get out of here as soon as possible because no one cares about me and loves me. And he wasn't changing. He was the same person the whole time. He was doing the same things the whole time. But depending on my mood or depending on how hypervigilant I was or depending on how upset I was about something else, I would perceive more abandonment and rejection from him. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything he would say, I would take as a personal attack. Everything he wouldn't do, I took as, you know, laziness or, you know, whatever it is. And so a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment comes in there. We judge the other person and then we end up judging ourselves for how we treated the other person. Now we're shaming ourselves. Then we get, you know, angry at ourselves. And what do we do to our partners when we're angry? We tend to lash out, right? Or we tend to, cut them off and, and detach from them and pull away from them. All of that, not super helpful for relationships. So part of, I think, breaking that cycle is, is learning how to be vulnerable and learning how to communicate. That's, mm-hmm. that's where I've seen the most growth from people is honestly, simply learning how to communicate. If we can let someone know in a calm tone of voice that, Hey, I know you're not abandoning me. I know you're not rejecting me, but Right now I feel abandoned and rejected. So could you just give me a hug instead of saying, you know, I know you don't care about me. I know you don't love me and and on and on. That simple change of communication creates connection. And so when you get that person to hear you, instead of, you know, all they can see is the behaviors, all they can see is you shutting down or you yelling, when they can finally hear you and understand you and hear what you're asking for, they can give it to you. And so when we identify what it is that we really need, which is usually just some validation and, and our partner can learn how to validate us, a lot of those, those things start to, to change. You know, we don't act on a fear of abandonment, but we use that, that feeling of fear to build a connection in our relationship instead of pushing people away. Yeah, well said. Vulnerability and communication. I think those are the answers to a lot of things in life, but often they are the hardest and most challenging. (laughs) Yeah, especially for a brain that's constantly in fight or flight mode. (laughs) You know, that's the last thing that we want to do. And we've probably been hurt before, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it does take risk. It takes vulnerability. It it, it takes effort. Mm -hmm. And you could get hurt. And the sooner that we accept that that's a possibility, you know, the sooner we accept that, hey, somebody might say something that I'm not going to be happy about or not that, you know, it's going to hurt my feelings. And then we know how to manage those feelings and we know how to communicate with the person back instead of lashing out or getting angry. Um, it, it really builds builds the relationship. Conflict is not bad for relationships when we learn how to, how to have conflict in a healthy way with healthy communication. Um, it's great. You don't necessarily have to change how you're feeling. It's just communicating how you're feeling changes. Yeah. And your story with your husband gives me so much hope that it is possible. And I think to that point, though, it's really crucial to have a supportive partner who understands and empathizes with you rather than scrutinizes or makes you feel even worse about yourself than you already do. Yes. So ideally, someone with BPD is going to have a partner that is both empathetic and, and, and very patient, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm very patient with my husband, too. It takes a lot to be patient. (laughs) Right? But, but we need people that, that are going to, they don't have to understand everything. They don't have to know everything about our illness. They don't have to study up on our illness necessarily, although it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but if they're patient with us and they're understanding and they can learn how to communicate and validate, that's very helpful. We also need partners with good boundaries mm-hmm. because as much as it's important for them to validate us, it's also important for them to not, you know, reinforce the behaviors. So what I ran into a lot in my own relationship is that, you know, if I had an absolute blowout and I made threats, I got a response. And if I if I spoke calmly, I didn't get as much of a response. And so that was reinforced for me. I learned that if I wanted him to respond, I had to have a blow up. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I had to unlearn all that, all of that. And he had to unlearn all of that, um, to not give in when I was, you know, having a blow up to not respond, to not get reactive. That's a hard thing for, for a partner to do. But again, 
very possible and very helpful boundaries on both sides. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because you literally read my mind, Jade. I was just going to ask you about <laughs> testing behavior and the whole push you away to see if you come back or the, like you said before, it's all end things with you before you can hurt me. You know how many times I've broken yes. up with my boyfriend in my mind? So I wanted yes. you to talk about the testing behavior. And I think what you said is so true to not reinforce or unlearn that reactivity is really crucial as well. Yes. So my husband, God bless him. He, he knows nothing about psychology or behavior modification. Absolutely nothing. He's a land surveyor, but this man, he, he was brutal with the behavior mod techniques. He, he just stopped talking. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't respond. He wouldn't talk to me. Nothing. If I got to a certain level, he was like, okay, I'm done. We're not having this conversation anymore. And he just detached. He didn't do it in an angry way. He didn't say, you know, you're nuts, you're crazy or anything like that. He just said, I'm not having this conversation anymore. And, and would, and would follow through on that, on that statement, on that boundary. He, he would not respond. And so the first couple of times he did that typical of behavior modification, I, I, pitched a fit. <laughs> you know, I pitched an absolute fit because I'm used to getting a response. Mm -hmm. Um, he stuck with it and that was a boundary. That was a boundary that, that I personally needed. Now everybody's boundaries look different. It's not necessarily what I'm telling anybody to go do. Um, but just an example of how, you know, when, when you detach and you don't react, you can start to, to, to change the behavior. So I started to learn rather quickly um, that if I wanted him to respond to me, if I wanted a reaction or a response out of him, I had to speak to him, you know, with, with some level of respect, mm -hmm. you know, I could get upset. I could, I could say some things I didn't mean and things like that, but I had to, I couldn't threaten that I was going to hurt myself. I couldn't threaten to leave, you know, because, yeah. because then the consequences were not what I wanted to, mm -hmm. to deal with. Yeah. So I've, I've learned those maladaptive behaviors as well that really don't get us very far. <laughs> right. Right. But they're learned. They're mm -hmm. learned. Right. And, and I think where we get stuck is we, we really do shame ourselves a lot and that keeps us stuck in the cycle. We've got to forgive ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a hard part for me too, because, you know, it causes damage to the relationship and, and you do feel terrible about that. And sometimes you, you take it to another level where you feel like you're ruining someone's life or you're, mm. you know, doing things like that. And, and that shame cycle is not helpful. We really do have to forgive ourselves, forgive others and go back in and try to use communication. And it's a, it's hard to do that. Um, but as you learn to manage your emotions too, it gets yeah. easier and easier and easier. And pretty soon you, you can communicate with people without, you know, you can both walk away feeling good about how the conversation went, even if you disagreed or, or had an argument. Yeah. Yeah. 110%. I would love to finish here. I, I could talk to you about this for days, honestly, <laughs> um, but we have to wrap up eventually. I'd love to end on a high note and talk about any resources or supporting a loved one, whether that is a partner or a family member or friend that has BPD. Because sometimes I find the people in my life kind of feel like the enemy sometimes. It's either they're my best friend or they're my enemy. So how can someone that either has BPD, maybe they're supporting a loved one with BPD, how can we be supportive and make their lives and our lives easier in the process? Yeah. So my, my number one resource always is the family connections course. It's, it's run through NEA BPD, which is a, a nonprofit. And so they offer this course for free to family members and loved ones. They do ask for like a $60 donation. It's not mandatory. There is a waiting list too. So get on it as soon as possible. But if you are a loved one or, or a family member, um, a, even like the child of someone with BPD or the parent of someone with BPD, get into a family connections course. It's, it's just a zoom meeting. I think they're meeting just on zoom, um, currently, but it's great. You connect with other people. They start teaching you skills. They start teaching you how to communicate with your loved one in a way that your loved one can hear you. They start to, to teach you about borderline so you can understand more about what's going on and, and empathize a little bit so that you feel less angry. They teach you how to care about, you know, care for yourself because your self-care and your boundaries are important. So so they do all of that for the families and the loved ones is the Family Connections course. Um, Loving Someone with Borderline Personality Disorder is a good book for a lot of loved ones. Um, I'll, 
I'll give everyone a heads up. A lot of loved ones start start with walking on eggshells. That's actually not the book that I recommend uh, people read. Uh, people usually walk away from reading that book actually walking on eggshells. So <laughs> it doesn't actually work out super well. Um, I definitely recommend uh, loving someone with borderline personality disorder, checking out videos by people like Dr. Fox on YouTube. Dr. Daniel Fox um, is an expert on borderline personality disorder, finding compassionate resources, not people that are going to tell you that your loved one is a monster because those people are not going to help you. And usually your goal is to help repair and maintain the relationship, not to, not to end it, you know? So, so those are some great resources for the loved ones to start finding some tools. And it, and really you see responses really quickly when you start to make some changes, it's, you can model that for people with BPD and the person with BPD will, will kind of follow. That's what I saw in my own life. Yeah, that's a great, great uh, read suggestion because a lot of books and resources will just tell you the person in your life with BPD, cut them out. They're a monster. They're going to ruin your life. So we need more empathic and compassionate resources that are both insightful and kind at the same time because everyone deserves respect. Yes, <laughs> yes we do. There there are actually, I'm finding a lot of good resources on, on podcasts. There are a lot of great podcasts out there. Um Online DBT skills is one. There's, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, of another site. Jones Mindfulness, I believe, is the name of another one. Um, so looking up DBT or BPD podcasts, a lot of those are are, are good resources. Um, but I do, you know, always be careful where you go for information because there is there is stuff out there that's that's very stigmatizing. So be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for those resources. I'm going to have to look them up myself. They sound really amazing and helpful. So I'm excited to check those out. Good, good. Yeah. And we also have yourself as a resource. So I'd love if you can tell our listeners the work you're doing, workshops, how they can work with you and get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I run weekly masterclasses. I've got one on Monday for people usually in the North America region. Uh, and then another one on Thursday for people who are in the UK, Europe region, and that's where we go over DBT skills. We will talk about BPD frequently because the majority of people are coming there for that type of resource. Um, I also work one-on-one -on -one with people. We do master classes. In fact, in the coming uh, the upcoming year, we're going to be doing a lot more of those master classes, workshops, and things on various topics like fear of abandonment. You know, what skills do we use to manage fear of abandonment? What can we do to start changing that? Uh, what can we do to start changing emptiness? So those are some of the, the classes and things that will be coming up. Um, and my email is always open. So people can always come to ask questions. I try to give out as much information as I can um, to people because there's just such a lack. So my email is always open, jade at jadestanton.com. They can always reach, reach out there as well and find some, find some resources. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing. I'm actually starting DBT in December, so I'm really excited. I've heard nothing but good things about it. Uh, congratulations. I am excited <laughs> for you. When I say that's what changed my life, that's what changed my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started with finding hope and finding a doctor and finding therapy, um, but it was, it was learning those skills and putting them into practice in my day-to-day -day life that, that changed everything everything for me. And so I am so excited for you that it, it's really awesome. Oh, thank you. Very nice. Yeah, I can't wait. And I will for sure link all of your um, links and social media and website in the show notes for people to connect with you because I'm sure they will want to after this conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it was a great conversation. It really was. I'm so glad that we got to meet together and, and have this discussion. And, and I love that you're putting this up. I love that you're talking about BPD. I think it's great. Thank you so much, Jade. Likewise.